I'm Brandon Amoroso, and this is the D2Z Podcast, building and growing your business from a Gen Z perspective. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to D2Z, a podcast about using the Gen Z mindset to grow your business. I'm Gen Z entrepreneur Brandon Amoroso, founder and president of Retention as a Service Agency, Electric. And today, I'm talking with Bill Bolden, a serial tech startup CTA, CTO who focuses on bringing products from really the idea phase all the way through to launch. Thanks for coming on, Bill. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. I'm excited to be here. So uh, before we jump into things here, can you just give everybody a quick background uh, on yourself? Sure. Um, I've been a startup employee my whole life. Um, I'm about 20 years into my career. Uh, First starting as a low-level developer, a junior developer, then a senior developer, then a full-stack developer. And then I really took the plunge into this fractional CTO life where I work part-time for tech startups that need someone who can make their product and bring it to market, but can't necessarily afford a full-fledged Silicon Valley CTO full-time. You need a lot of money in the bank to pay those kind of salaries. So Mm -hmm. I come in at a much more affordable place where it's like, maybe you only have 20 grand to work with or something. I can get you a product in that much time. And so I launch these products and then move on to the next opportunity. Got it. And so it's more of like a a part-time you're hopping in on a contract basis. Yes. Um, I, I sometimes work hourly. I sometimes work on a per project basis, but uh, most of the time I have what's called a hot zone which is where I start and I'm almost like a full-time employee. So Mm -hmm. when I begin, I'm spinning up your infrastructure, I'm hiring your developers, I'm writing all the code, I'm building your product. It's almost like a full-time employee, but then I very quickly taper off. And so um, the systems start running themselves. Like now the devs can fix the bugs on their own. The new features are coming every week on their own. I'm not needed anymore. So I gently exit the picture and there's not that year long commitment where when you hire a CTO, normally you're looking for somebody who's going to be there at the three, four year mark, handling your vision roadmap, handling, um, mm-hmm. handling your annual meetings, running a team of 200 people. I'm not that person. I get you out the door with something that can land on people's screens. What inspired you to go this route versus, I guess, more traditional route of being that like three to four year Uh, Well, I did that once and it was great for a lot of experience. Um, But then I made some bad startup bets. So I worked at a startup. um, My fourth startup ran out of capital about six months in and I was left on the job market. So I went searching for another full-time position. That Mm -hmm. startup ran out of capital two months in and I had only just been hired as a full-time employee two months previous. Um, So from that point, I wasn't willing to leave that startup completely behind because they needed somebody for a small fee to keep taking care of the site and do maintenance. So I said, Mm -hmm. all right, I'll look for part-time work now. I found part-time work. They needed someone who was like a CTO, but they couldn't afford a full-time CTO. All of a sudden, I'm seeing a pattern. And so I made that my whole thing, my whole scene, and embraced that model moving forward. And now I'm serving as the fractional CTO of somewhere between six and nine tech startups, depending on how you want to count it. Got it. And then are you taking on like equity positions in these startups as well? Or is it just cash Um, compensation? 
I have, I have a schedule where, um, I have a schedule where I normally work for cash and you Mm -hmm. can cut that price in half by giving me a percent of your company. And you can cut that price to a third by giving me 2% of your company. Got it. Okay. I mean, I bet that gives you some significant upside as well too. Um, Yes. It's nice to have a lot of horses in the race. I've got equity in about 10 different companies right now. And um, it's really cool to always have a little skin in the game. You know, I've, yeah. Moved on from many of them. Some of them I'm only sort of, um, what would you say, like a break glass in case of emergency sort of asset. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's nice to know that when they win, I win. And are all of your tech startups, are they in similar industries or is it just all across no, the board? They're all across the board. I've got one that's a commissary rental <laughs> Airbnb. So it's like, um, it's sort of like an Airbnb for renting commercial kitchen space. That one's called Use Kitch. And it's like, oh, I need to rent a place where I can cook 400 muffins on Saturday for a day. That's what that site does. Then I've got Hello Audio, which is a podcast hosting website that can serve like intelligent podcasts. I've actually worked in the podcasting space quite a bit. I've got Quan Wellbeing, which is a well-being focused startup for large corporations. And recently I've been working with Book with Tote, which is a Shopify plugin, which lets you... Um, save clothes, not to a shopping cart, but to a fitting room that you can then go to the store and have a fitting room laid out for you that you assembled on the site. So that's just an example of how diverse my industries are. I'll, I'll work in any industry, except I won't do anything defense related. I won't do anything um, med tech related because there's too much regulation. I don't know. And it would be Mm -hmm. very heavy of me to wade into that field and pretend I know all about (laughs) <laughs> the market when I don't. And same thing with FinTech, lots of laws to follow. Um, yeah. They need someone else for that. Who isn't me? That makes sense. Well, stick to what you know and what the other people pick up where, where, where you won't. And I think we've encountered that with like the, the healthcare industry as well with HIPAA and certain CRMs you can use and you can't use. And it's just a little bit of a, a mess. And, you know, I'll, I'll let somebody else, take on that headache. <laughs> yep. I just know that person's not me. So, I mean, it's really interesting that you get so much exposure though, to all these different types of industries while still being able to leverage your like core competencies um, versus just like only doing e-commerce technology, for example. Yeah. Um, my, my core competency is my ability to spin up a web application, mm-hmm. um, including crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. And I can do that for anybody who doesn't have some very special secret sauce that they need, like next level rocket science, data engineering. Um, You know, maybe uh, I don't have the depth of knowledge required to do something like make Uber's routing algorithm. Um, You need specialized people for that. But if you're making a new app where people who like to collect rocks can find other shiny rock enthusiasts, That's just like any number of other apps that there have ever been. Um, And I, I can crank those out in a fortnight. I, I should have a conversation with you separately at some point um, on, on the web app side of things, because we're actually going through uh, something of an exercise like that right now. And we are also like consulting with somebody else who's more so on the algorithm side and actually has to, like digging and do do the back end stuff. Um, so that's interesting. But 
having worked with so many different startups, what are some of the mistakes that you've seen get made that maybe people could take away some, some lessons from? I would say um, I keep seeing my startups make the same mistake. And the biggest one that I would like to warn your audience away from is uh, if you build it, they will come mindset. Um, almost all the founders I've worked with have believed that the world will be the path to their door once their product exists. So, you know, if you only had an app where you could post your favorite pictures of shiny rocks you've collected, everyone who likes rocks would be on the app. It's just not true. You can't make the app and then wait for the world to show up. Um, you need to aggressively pre-market the idea with a waiting list, staging areas, and um, test out growing communities ahead of time. And I tell these people who come to me with these ideas, I say, prove to me that you can grow a subreddit to a thousand people. Prove to me that you can grow mm -hmm. a Discord to a thousand people. If you can do that, then I'll know that you have the ability to put your vision in front of people. Then I'll make you an app. Got it. So it really comes down to generating the actual like demand. The, the product could be as great as you make it, but it doesn't matter if nobody cares. Right. And I feel really bad when someone finishes their engagement with me and they're out 50 grand and they've got a great working shiny app and no one ever signs up or uses it. And so now I will, I will say, um, what can I do to help you test your product market fit ahead of time? Can we, mm. um, get people engaged in another way? So, um, for instance, we had uh, this reminder app that was um, going to be expensive to build, and we started it with just emails and text messages. So you just we just manually sent emails and text messages as reminders for things. And when people liked that, then it's like, okay, we can go ahead and make the whole reminders app now. We'll make it a real app. But if people didn't like that in the first go round, you just saved yourself 50 grand. Right. It's all about like creating that MVP, being able to test it before you go like all in on, on development. Yeah. Right. And this is something I chronically have um, a challenging time with is defining my founders expectations downwards from a mm -hmm. fully fleshed out site because in their head, they see Airbnb or Uber. They see a complete <laughs> product that has all yeah. the bells and whistles and everything works the way they want it to. And every link on the site goes somewhere. And in real life, it just isn't like that. You want to, you know, get in, get out with something I can build you in six weeks. We're going to talk about compromises. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and it's a world which I'm starting to foray into more and more here, having come from the agency world and now moving into the software side of things. Um, it's just completely different in terms of one, like the time that takes like the time that it takes to go into a product and actually like get it to a point where like I would be comfortable with releasing it, but that's not the reality. Like you need to be able to create these like small uh, iterations and tests that you can learn from before you actually go all in and end up wasting like 50 grand or a hundred grand or whatever it may be. That's exactly it. You've got to go with the small iterations. I always tell people that your MVP is the first thing that does the thing that isn't embarrassing. So as soon as you have a thing that does the main thing and it's not embarrassing, get that out there and start collecting users. Yeah. 
especially if you have like a large network, I think of, of early adopters and, and, and people who want to test and come into it with that understanding, then you're not going to have to deal with any potential like backlash around, oh, well, this was like a half-baked solution that you put out here. And uh, I think setting expectations, just like it is with the agency, with clients, setting expectations is super important. Yep. So my, my clients come to me and they have a vision of a luxury automobile. And <laughs> um, you talk them down to the Prius? No, I talk them down to a bicycle. <laughs> because the first thing that does the thing is getting you from place to place, but a bike is still all put together. It's not embarrassing. Mm-hmm. It's not missing parts or unsafe. So that's where you start. And then you're like, ah, my idea where people like to move from point A to point B is really taking off. We're like, now let's invest in the automobile. Got it. That's funny. A bicycle. <laughs> is it at least, is it at least electric or is this, you have to pedal it yourself? It can be electric, but I, I, I myself prefer the, the pedal it yourself varieties. That's one of my main hobbies is biking. Oh, really? Awesome. Yeah. I picked that up during, uh, during COVID. Um, I guess one of the positives of COVID was me getting outdoors more and cycling and, and running a bit. Um, but what are some of the successes you've seen? So we've chatted about some of the mistakes you've seen with the startup founders. And I think it's pretty obvious that you need to, test and get out there and not build something in a vacuum and make it this like Ferrari of a solution that maybe nobody's ever even going to use. Um, what are some of the things you've seen that have been successful for the, all the companies that you've worked with? Yeah. So things that I've seen work well over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. This is going to sound counterintuitive, but charging a lot of money, especially at the start. <laughs> um when your company is focused around doing one thing extremely well and your MVP may only do one thing, but it excels at it. It's an amazing tool. You can charge top dollar and you will be rewarded with users who truly understand your mission and care about the problem you're solving. I've seen people conversely who were so anxious to get users, they gave their product away for free And there is nobody more entitled than a free user (laughs) Um, over and over again. I find that when you, um, when you give it away for like, Oh, it's only $5 a month. People expect the world for $5 a month. You make Mm -hmm. it $99 a month and people understand like your software, you know, has a hiccup one day and they're like, Oh, I get it. And it's like, really, you'd think the people who paid more would be a lot more entitled, but it works exactly the opposite direction. So yeah, we, we actually just went through this exercise when pricing um, the drinks app for Shopify. And I was like, I don't want to be servicing anybody for less than $250 a month. Um, Cause like we just did purely variable. We would have merchants that were paying $5 or $10 and they'd have the same expectations, if not higher in terms of support that they would get. And it would be completely unsustainable. But is that, is, is, would you say that's the same for like marketing tactics where you offer the first month free and then it rolls into like real pricing? Oh, sure. Um, I'm no marketing expert and I, free trials are really powerful, but I'm okay. saying um, I, the I price of the solution itself. The overall price. Yeah. I've seen pricing yourself high at the, the most successful startup I've had the um, I've got two exits to my name. And the first one, was uh, 
the most expensive app I've ever developed. It was an app targeted at the world's largest law firms. And um, when you're dealing with the world's largest law firms, you can throw up prices like, you know, um, a hundred dollars a seat a month and and they, they, they okay because they're used to things being very expensive. And I've, I've found actually that if you price yourself too low for certain audiences, they'll just completely ignore you or they don't even know like how to handle it. Like there's, they don't even have the internal processes set up to like wrap their head around anything that's like less than thousands of dollars a month. And they don't take you seriously then. Yep. The other thing that I've seen work well over and over again, and I'm going to get a little technical here, but I am a technical person is moving away from servers and towards Mm -hmm. what are called serverless technologies. So without going too deep into um, the, you know, writing the code of it, uh, software used to be hosted on series of servers that could go up, go down, have problems, um, crash, et cetera. And there's been a big push towards moving off of servers towards cloud functions called Lambdas or Google Cloud Functions or Heroku's that independently execute in the cloud and can spin up and down scaling with the amount of demand they're under. So if a million people all decide to use your service at the same time, it just spins up a million requests without crashing some server somewhere. That Mm -hmm. is something that I've seen pay dividends over and over again. So it's pretty important to set the infrastructure of your solution up for scale so that you don't have like tech debt later on that you have to go back and try and fix. You'd say that's a pretty crucial component. Yeah, exactly. Um, You don't need to prepare for the day you have 10 million users, but you'd be surprised how many people don't prepare for the day they have a hundred. Got it. So what are some of the biggest trends you're seeing in the startup space right now with how much exposure you have to the various tools and platforms that are coming out? Well, um, there, I mean, there's trends. There's some trends that I think are, you know, flashes in the pan and some are here to stay. Like, for instance, is Web3 a buzzword in search of a solution or is it the next big thing? And we could hold mm-hmm. an entire podcast just on that. But the big thing that I'm seeing is the move towards no code tools rather than hiring engineers to build you custom code to make your app run. Um, I've worked with people who've launched products by connecting a type form to an Airtable and then manually Mm -hmm. going and, and emailing the people in that Airtable every day. It's totally possible. And people don't know that you didn't spend 150 grand building a huge engine to do it. You know, you'd be surprised. Um, I tell my clients AI in quotation fingers, AI in quotation fingers is, when there's a human looking at it on the back end and making the right call for you. Um, yeah. But something, something we've been working through on like a side project that I'm working on is like augmenting the algorithm with the human. So it's sort of like a 50, 50 there. It's sort of like check and verify before pushing through. Um, which I think is sort of like a happy medium. Cause I mean, the ideal would be there aren't, there is nobody there. Right. You, you eventually automate the human away, but you do that at scale when it becomes more expensive to have the humans than to have the computers, which is not true at first because your first line of code costs you your first 10 grand. 
Got it. So I would say that a growing awareness of these no code and low code tools, like the ability to staple together type forms with Airtables, with mm -hmm. Retool, with Zapier, with HubSpot, with Constant Contact, with MailChimp, with ActiveCampaign, and with Shopify. If you can master those half a dozen tools and just understand all the different ways of gluing them together, you can launch full-fledged tech startups on a shoestring budget, less than a thousand dollars of investment. That's impressive. <laughs> that is not, I don't think that is the norm in terms of uh, how people think they need to go about it. There's, there's almost this, we need to go raise a bunch of money and then develop something truly amazing and not necessarily that like lean and scrappy approach to, to putting it together. Yeah. One thing I need to work on is I talk myself out of business a lot because I have a meeting like this with a potential founder who thinks they need to hire me to build their app. And I teach them instead how to do it without needing any developers. And they're like, oh, that was great. And now I'm out of a job, but it's okay because I helped the customer. And that's what. Yeah. I mean, it engenders goodwill too. So, you know, yeah. um, they'll be much happier with you and I'm sure you'll work with them in the future. Versus you telling them, oh, yeah, you need to pay me $100,000, actually, and we're going to build this amazing thing. And then to have them be very disappointed. And even though it's not your fault, nobody wants to use it, they still look to you as, well, why did we do this? Yep. Right now, my LinkedIn, um, my LinkedIn catchphrase is just, I take things to prod. But I've been considering changing it lately to, I'm getting very good at not building apps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of like, here's what I'm really good at is not doing the thing. I'm good at talking you out of bad decisions. Yeah. You're almost, you're, you're like a dual consultant. You can build it, but you can also coach people through whether or not this is something they should actually do. Right. That's funny. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is really insightful. Um, before we hop off here, could you just let everybody know where they could find you? Uh, online if they wanted to reach out and connect? Sure. Um, I have a site. It's billbolden.com, B-I-L-L-B-O-U-L-D-E-N.com. And I'm slash in slash billbolden on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter as Down Upright, but that's mostly for my DJ and musical work, um, which is a whole other side of my personality we did not <laughs> get into today. Uh, that's where you can find me online. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. Yeah, of course. Uh, as always, uh, this is Brandon Amoroso. You can find me at brandonamoroso.com uh, or electricmarketing.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time.